Happy Father's Day weekend to all the dads. Thankful for them. There was a dad and a mom, and they were tucking their son into bed, and about 10 minutes went by, and all of a sudden, the little guy just starts screaming, crying. They thought, what in the world's going on? So mom and dad, they run down the hallway to see what's happened, and the little boy explains that he has swallowed a penny, and he is certain that he's going to die. Well, the mom tries to convince him he's not going to die because he swallowed a penny. The dad tries to convince him of the same thing, but the little guy won't listen to what mom or dad has to say. He's just certain that he's going to die. So the dad decides to do something without talking to his wife first. He palms a penny in his hand, and then he reaches behind the little boy's ear and rips a penny out of his ear, and he says, See, son, I went down into your stomach, pulled out the penny through your ear, so you don't have anything to worry about anymore. The little boy grabbed the penny, swallowed it, and said, Do it again, Dad. Do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't work out the way the dad thought, you know. And the mom wasn't too happy about what the dad had just done, to be honest with you. And that's the truth about being a dad, isn't it? Sometimes we feel more like a fool than we feel like being cool. And we try really hard, but sometimes the best we do, it just never seems to feel like it's good enough. Let me give you a word of encouragement. There was a husband and wife, they went off on a date. And when they got back from the date, the babysitter didn't pay very good attention to the kids. And when they saw the son, the son had grabbed the razor of the dad. This is the razor the dad used to shave his bald head clean. And he had taken the razor and had a strip right down the middle of his head. Had a reverse mohawk is what the little guy had. Well, the dad was upset. He couldn't believe it. He said, oh, son, how many times have I told you not to mess with my razor? I use that to shave all the hair off of my head. He's getting ready to discipline the son for what he's done. He said, wait till you see sister. <laughs> so he calls for his daughter. His daughter comes walking around the corner. She's bald. There's not a single hair upon the girl's head. And the dad just says, oh my goodness, what in the world were you two thinking? And the little girl very innocently said, dad, we just want to be like you. And friends, that's the way that it is. Dad, you've got to understand that. They might never, ever admit it. But there are things about you that they want to walk in your shadow. They want to walk in your footsteps. And the mere fact that you're here today, that you're watching on the stream, you're watching on TV, the mere fact that you care about the things of God, that you want to honor God and love God with everything you've got, I believe that you'll be contagious. And I believe that your kids will want what you have because they see something authentic and they see something real in you. You are doing a good work, Dad. So don't give up and don't grow weary, okay? Let's pray for the dads. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, I know how difficult it is. And we try. And I don't think there's a single dad here today that ever feels like his best is ever good enough. But Lord, you've placed us here for such a time as this to give our very best. And so Lord, help us each day to have perseverance. Help us each day to have the wisdom that our family needs. Help us each day to point our families to you. Help us each day to keep you as the very centerpiece of our life. Lord, there's going to be days when we're discouraged, when we're down. There's going to be moments when the storms come in 
and it feels like it's going to overwhelm us and it's going to take control of us. Lord, I pray you'll be our rock, you'll be our refuge, you'll be our strength in a world that's gone absolutely nuts. I pray for the Christian fathers that they would stand as a light in a dark place and they would be the salt of the earth. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's get into Troublemaker Part 2. Now, last week, we got to where Jesus was born. Well, let's pick up from there, shall we? Eight days after Jesus is born, they go to the temple, Mary and Joseph do, and they have baby Jesus circumcised, and that's where his name is officially given to him as Jesus. And then six weeks after Jesus is born, they go through a process called the purification process. This is where you would come and you would give an offering of thanksgiving to the Lord. Now, one of the things that we know about Mary and Joseph is that they were just a poor peasant couple. In fact, when they gave their offering to the Lord, it was customary for people to offer a lamb. But Mary and Joseph didn't have enough money to offer a lamb, so they only offered two small white doves. Now, if there's ever a time in your life when you feel like you're insignificant, if there's ever a time in your life when you feel like God isn't ever going to be able to use you, just remember Mary and Joseph. They've got no power, they have no influence, they have no finances whatsoever, but they had one thing that every person has to have to be used by God. You ready? They were available. More than anything else, they just wanted to be used by God in any means that he saw necessary. And friends, if we would just surrender our lives over to him, and if we would say, oh, Lord, I am available to do what you want me to do, go where you want me to go, say what you want me to say, if we would just surrender our lives to him, then we would find ourselves on the greatest adventure there ever was. Well, Mary and Joseph kind of settled there in Bethlehem. How do we know that? Well, when the wise men come several months later, all, all of a sudden we find that Mary and Joseph are staying in a house. Now, here's the question that you probably have. How did the wise men know to come to where the newborn king was? And how did they know to follow a star to find the newborn king? Well, to understand the background to this particular part of the story, you have to understand something that significantly happened 600 years earlier. There was a prophet. His name was Daniel. In the Old Testament, there's a book that bears his name called the book of Daniel. Well, Daniel was a godly man. He served under uh, King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And Daniel was given the supernatural ability to interpret dreams. So people considered him a wise man. They considered him a magi. Well, Daniel began a school of the magi. Well, in Daniel chapter 9, God reveals to Daniel when the Messiah is going to come. 483 years after the temple would be rebuilt. So Daniel wrote that prophecy down. He passed it down from one generation to another. The school of prophets knew about that prophecy. So they know almost the exact time, give or take a month or two, when the Messiah is supposed to be brought into the world. Now, how did they know to look for a star? Well, the book of Numbers, there's a prophecy concerning this. Numbers 24, verse 17, it says, I see him, but not now. 
I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. So they know the approximate time the Messiah is going to be born. They know they're supposed to look for a brand new star and to follow that star. And so when that moment in time happens and the star appears, they take off. Are you ready for this? On a 900-mile journey to go worship the newborn king. And if you know the story very well, you know when they got close to Bethlehem, they got to Jerusalem, they had a little pit stop, and they had a conversation with King Herod. Now, King Herod was considered the king of the Jews. And so when the wise men came in to have a conversation with Herod, they said, where is the one born king of the Jews? And Herod wasn't excited about that. He didn't like anyone being a threat to his power and to his position. Now, Herod was a very shrewd individual, so he said to the wise men, he said, listen, when you find the baby, let me know where you found him so I can come and worship him too. But he had no intention to worship the baby Jesus. He had every intention to murder the baby Jesus. In fact, Mary and Joseph, Joseph is warned in a dream that Herod is going to try to kill the child, and so they get out of Bethlehem. Look at what the scripture says here. It says, when Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, that's because they went a different direction, right? The wise men had a dream, and, and, they, and the dream said, don't go back the way of Herod. Don't tell them what you've seen. It says, he was furious with them, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Now, Bethlehem wasn't a large town. We talked about that last week. Historians estimate 20 to 30 baby boys died on this night. Can you imagine the horror of that? They break into the door of every single home. They look for a baby, a child who is two years and younger. And then all of a sudden, they're killing your child right in front of your face. And there's nothing you can do about it. Well, here's the question you got to ask yourself. How in the world did Mary and Joseph get out of there? I mean, it costs money to travel, doesn't it? And they're just a penniless peasant couple. How in the world were they able to escape to Egypt to get away from Herod's clutches? Well, it was the wise men, wasn't it? They came and they brought gifts with them. Now, here's what's interesting. We don't know how many wise men there were. But it's a bunch of guys, right? And being a bunch of guys, I'm guessing they all went together on the gifts. Don't you think? I think they all went together. I don't think it was individual. Because everybody thinks it's three wise men because there's three gifts. I think there's probably 12, 15, to be honest with you. I'll chip in 20. You chip in 20, I'll right, put a 20 in there. All right, that's a nice gift right there. And I imagine them traveling 900 miles like, hey, man, what did I, what'd I give in for the gift? And, and one guy says, well, we got gold. I said, oh, it's a good gift. It's a good gift right there. Gold, that's a gift of royalty, I tell you what. Says the son guy, hey, what I chip in for over there? He said, chipped in for frankincense. He said, well, that's a good gift. Frankincense was an incense that was poured out in the temple. It was an aroma that was pleasing to God. It was symbolic that Jesus is not only royalty, but he is our high priest. He is our intercessor. He is the one who's going to die for our sins. Just that's a good gift right there. What's the third gift that we've got? Guy said, we brought myrrh. He said, what's myrrh? Do you know what myrrh is? It's embalming fluid. We bought embalming fluid with us? Take my name off that card, okay? I don't want to be a part of that. A few screws short of it, I'll tell you what. Symbolic. 
This baby is born to die for the sins of all mankind. So the appropriate gift, embalming fluid. And Mary and Joseph, they took all these gifts and they were able to use them to get out of town. Now I want you to think about that. They didn't even know that they had a need. And yet God sent wise men 900 miles to meet the need right when they had the need. Some of you walked in here today full of anxiety and stress. Some of you walked in here just frustrated with how life is going right now. And it seems like every single day there's something else to get anxious about, isn't there? I mean, my goodness, one headline after another after another. Have you seen the gas prices? Have you seen how much it costs to have food in your mouth and your belly? Have you gone out to eat lately? Do you know what I'm talking about? And we're like, I don't know how we're going to afford this. This is ridiculous. Inflation is killing everything and everybody. And you're beginning to stress out, aren't you? What's the Bible say? The Bible says don't be anxious about anything. About anything. But in everything. By prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, you offer your request to God. And if you'll do that, the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Cast all your cares upon him. Because he cares so much for you. And for some of you at home and some of you in this room, this is what you needed to hear more than anything else. Because you're so stressed out and you're so anxious, you're not sure how you're going to make it. Listen, God sees you and God knows your need. And as he provided for Mary and Joseph, he will provide for you as well. That's the kind of God that we love. That's the kind of God that we serve. Well, here's what's interesting about Jesus' life. Guess what? There's, there's no more stories about Jesus as a kid. Well, well, there is one story when he's 12 years old, but that's it. I mean, from this, basically the birth story till 12 years old, we got nothing about Jesus growing up. And then we have one story at age 12, and then we don't have anything until he turns 30. And the story at age 12 doesn't put Mary and Joseph in a very positive light. It seems that they're going to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and they're, and they're traveling in, in, in a caravan. Now, some of you are thinking a Dodge, but that's not what it was. It wasn't a Dodge caravan. It was a caravan's a large group of people. No one traveled alone for the most part because of robbers and thieves, so you travel with a large group of people. And so they get to Jerusalem. They celebrate the Passover. Now it's time to get back on board the caravan, head back home. Well, Joseph thinks that Mary's got Jesus, and Mary thinks that Joseph has got Jesus, and after three days traveling with the caravan, nobody has Jesus. You understand the implication of what we're talking about here? They've just lost God. You understand what I'm saying? That's some wiggity-wack stuff. How do you lose God? For three days, they run back to Jerusalem, and they find Jesus in the temple. There's this little exchange that happens. The Bible says Jesus was sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Look at what Jesus says. Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He's already keenly aware of who he is and what his mission is and what his purpose is at the age of 12. There were, there were two young brothers, ages 8 and 10. Anytime something went bad in the town, in the school, in the church, it was generally these two kids that were the pranksters. And, and the mom and dad were very concerned about this. And, and they were like, you know, someone's got to scare these kids straight or they're going to end up getting older. They're going to get in trouble with the law. They'll probably be incarcerated as a result. And so they thought the local preacher, he's kind of a hellfire, brimstone kind of a guy, we'll have him meet with them individually. So the 
preacher would greet. And boy, that preacher was an intimidating preacher. He screamed, he yelled, he did all those different things to intimidate as many people as possible. And the kids were scared to death to go down there. Well, it was time for the eight-year-old to walk down the street. He walked four blocks, got to the church, waited outside, and finally the pastor called him in. He sat across the desk. The pastor was on the other side. The pastor looked at him with a mean look, and he said, Son, where is God? The little boy looked back and didn't know what in the world to say. He said, Boy, when I talk to you, you answer me. Where is God? Little boy shaking in his boots. He said, son, I'm going to give you one last chance. Where is God? And with that, the eight-year-old kid got up and ran out of the office. That's what he did. He ran down the street four blocks, went into his house, got up on the second floor. He's hiding in the closet, shaking like a leaf on a tree. His 10-year-old brother heard him come in. He runs in, opens the closet door, says, what's going on? What's going on? He said, oh, man, we're in big, big trouble. He said, what do you mean we're in big trouble? He said, God's missing and everybody thinks we did it. <laughs> I've waited all week for that one joke, okay? <laughs> so thank you for laughing. I appreciate that. So that's the only story at the age of 12. That's all we've got. And then we got nothing until 30. Now, here's the question. What happened during those 18 years between 12 and 30? Guess what? We don't know. We don't have a clue. We, we assume that Joseph has passed away during those years because we don't hear any more about Joseph after this encounter of them losing Jesus there at the temple. But this is what I found to be very significant as I was doing this study. Why in the world did Jesus start his public ministry at the age of 30? And I found two interesting reasons why Jesus chose 30 to start his public ministry. The first reason is because Jesus is the oldest of all the siblings. Now, I, I know our Catholic brothers and sisters, they've got their own version of the Bible. And they have changed this passage of scripture to say that Jesus didn't have brothers and sisters, half-brothers and half-sisters. They, they, they translate it to the word cousins. But in the Greek... It's brother and it's sister. See, the Catholics are trying to hold on to Mary's perpetual virginity. But that's not necessary, is it? Look at what the scripture says and let scripture speak for itself. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus is in his hometown and people don't believe that he's the Messiah. They said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary and aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Well, as being the firstborn son, he has a responsibility to take care of his family. As Joseph has passed away, and so it's his responsibility to be the breadwinner. At the age of 30, he would be relinquished to that responsibility, and that responsibility would now go to the next brother in line. Maybe that's one reason why he started at the age of 30. I think there's a more significant reason why he starts at the age of 30. You ready for this? In the Rabonic tradition, you weren't spiritually mature. And you couldn't be considered a rabbi until you were 30 years old. Look what the scripture says here in Numbers chapter 4 verse 3. It says, count all the men from 30 to 50 years of age who come to serve in the work in the tent of meeting. I find this very interesting. The number 30 pops up a lot in scripture. Joseph became second in charge of all of Egypt at the age of 30. 
David becomes the king of Israel at the age of 30. John the Baptist, who was six months older than Jesus, started his public ministry at the age of 30. And now Jesus starts his public ministry as well. And what's one of the first things that he does? Is he goes to be baptized by John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist was the one who was making the way of the Messiah. He was out in the desert telling people to repent. And as a symbol of their repentance, he was dipping them under the water. They were dying to their old way of life. They were now going to live their brand new life, right? That's what they were supposed to do. They're going to live their life now for God. Well, Jesus arrives on the scene. What's John the Baptist saying? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John knows that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And so they have a conversation. Jesus says, I want to be baptized. And John the Baptist says, no. You don't need to be baptized. You don't need to be baptized because you've never sinned. You've got nothing to repent over. So, so here's the question. Why did Jesus get baptized? I was reading a book by Gene Apple. He gave three excellent reasons. Let me give them to you. One is this. Baptism was the turning point in Jesus' life. When Jesus was baptized, he was announcing his public ministry. In essence, he was putting away his carpentry tools. And he was saying, my... My eye, my fix, my glaze is on the will of God. I've come to die for the sins of all mankind and three days later rise again from the dead. It was a turning point of his purpose. Isn't it the same way when we get baptized? You, you get into that water proclaiming your love and your allegiance to Jesus. You know what you're saying? Out with the old, in with the new. I have a new love. I love Jesus now with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I have a new lifestyle. I want to live my life for him. I have a new loyalty. He's first. He is the priority of my life. From this day forward, things are different. From this day forward, I'm giving my best to the one who gave his best for me. Let me give you a second reason. Jesus' baptism was a demonstration of his humility. Again, Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. Because again, John's baptism symbolizes repentance of sin. And Jesus never sinned. So what's he saying here? I think this is significant. I think Jesus is looking at you and saying, you know what? I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself. I will humble myself and be associated with the symbolic act of repentance of sin, even though I don't have to. Because he knew years later people would try to find a way out of baptism. And he'd say, whoa, 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 I got baptized. And if I'm willing to get baptized to proclaim my love for you, what would stop you from getting baptized to proclaim your love for him? It's an act of humility, isn't it? Every person who's ever stood in a baptismal, that's a humbling moment. You know what that means when you stand there? I don't have my life together. I need help. I need a Savior. I'm a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. It's humbling to admit that. And then when you go under the water and you come back up, you don't look good. <laughs> you don't. Your hair's funkified. I've seen it, it's messy. Got snot coming out your nose, you know what I'm saying? 
If you're ever get baptized, be one of the first ones, all right? If you're number 100, it's funkified. You understand what I'm saying? There's stuff floating there like, I'm going to get a shower. I got to get a shower. That's what it is right there. It's crazy. <laughs> then you trip on the way out. It's not good, you see. But there's also an element when you stand there, you say, this is for you. In light of everything you've done for me. Is there anybody that's loved you like Jesus loves you? Anybody who's ever forgiven you like Jesus has forgiven you? You got anybody who believes in you like Jesus believes in you and is so quick to forgive you and then not bring it back up and throw it in your face again and again? You got anybody like him? So it's this moment when you stand there in the tank and you say, this is for you. I want to be humble before you. And if this is what you want me to do, then this is what I want to do for you. Because it's not about me. It's about you. It's, it's a humbling thing. Jesus' baptism is also a picture of his ultimate mission. Jesus came to die for our sins. And then three days later, he would rise again from the dead. And you've seen this illustration a thousand times. And if you haven't, it's a really good one. Here's the water. Here's the person. It's a picture of the cross, isn't it? Jesus dies on the cross, is buried, rises again from the dead. That's what the symbol of baptism is. You die to your old way of life. You now come up and walk in newness of life. You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Look at this, Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Who should be baptized? Well, every person who professes Jesus to be the leader and forgiver of their life. Who should not be baptized? Anybody who has not professed Jesus to be the leader and forgiver of their life for themselves. A lot of you uh, were baptized as babies, or maybe you were sprinkled at some point in time as a dedication service. That baptism you will not find in Scripture. There's nothing evil about that baptism. There's nothing wrong with that baptism. That was your parents' way of dedicating you to the Lord. But you didn't have much say in that baptism, did you? I mean, if you were baptized as a baby, you had no say at all. You, that's all you said the whole time, right? You probably peed, you know, during the thing. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, when you're older, you don't pee in there. You understand what I'm saying? That doesn't happen. Please tell me that doesn't happen. That's what I want to know. You know, when, when someone chooses for you to be baptized, that's not the kind of baptism we find in Scripture. In Scripture, you make your choice. It's your public profession of your faith. It's you making the decision for yourself. And if your parents baptized you as a baby or, or from confirmation, they sprinkled water on you or something, hey, this is an affirmation of what they prayed for so many years ago. But this is biblical baptism. You go under the water representing the death burial and you come back up representing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a bonus reason. It was his public expression of his commitment to God. I don't want you to ever forget this. Jesus walked 80 miles to be baptized. That's how committed he was. 
And you know what's sad? Some of you are sitting 80 feet away. And you still won't do it. So what, what does that say about our expression of our commitment to him? People have asked me from time to time when I'm out and about. They're feeling convicted because they've trusted Jesus, but they've never been baptized. And they're looking for a way out of being baptized. And so they come up to me and say, hey, let me ask you a question. Do I have to be baptized to get to go to heaven? And I always tell them the same thing. No. You don't have to be baptized to go to heaven. Think about the thief on the cross, right? Thief on the cross is hanging there. And uh, he says, hey, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's what Jesus says to the man. He didn't say, hey, wait a second, wait a second. we got to stop the crucifixion. Got to get this guy down. Got to dip him under some water. It's not fit for the kingdom of God unless he's baptized, okay? Now, it didn't happen, okay? didn't happen. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It says this. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith plus infant baptism. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, plus going to church during the troublemakers. No, it doesn't say that either, does it? It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, plus getting baptized over in that tank over there. Doesn't say that either, does it? It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not even from yourselves. It's a gift from God, not by works. So that no one can boast. Now when people ask me, do I have to get baptized to go to heaven? I, I know they're looking for a way out of it. So I always give the same illustration every single time. So let me ask you a question. I, I got married years ago. And, and on my finger here is my, my wedding ring. I wear this ring everywhere I go. It's a symbol of my commitment to my wife. But let's say I didn't. Let's say right after we got married, during the honeymoon, I said, you know what, honey, I've never really worn a ring before, and it kind of messed me up, and I don't really want, you know, it, I don't, this is a lot of bling out there, you know. I just think I'll just put this thing off and just put it away, and, you know, we don't need a symbol of our relationship. You know that I love you. We don't have to let everybody else know about it, too. So I'd rather not wear the ring. How well you think that'd go over? Yeah, I wear the ring. That's how well it went over. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> Proud to wear this ring. I married way over my head. I want you to know about it. <laughs> Let me see if I got this straight. Jesus came and he lived a perfect sinless life. He dies an agonizing death on the cross. He suffers so badly, beaten beyond recognition. He's buried. He rises again three days later. And then he says, hey, I want you to be baptized. I was baptized. I want you to be baptized. Tell everybody how much you love me. It's the first act of obedience. Show everybody that you're committed to me. And your response, I'll take a pass. Can't we just keep this Jesus between the two of us? I wonder how that goes over in heaven. Did you know today people are getting baptized all around this world? 
And they're not getting baptized in places like where we baptize, you know, where everybody gets excited. You ever notice we do the baptisms during the songs and people even clap during the songs when you come up out of the water. I mean, nobody's booing anybody. Has anybody ever booed anybody during a baptism? I don't think I've ever heard that. There's no picketing. There's no signs waving. Oh, down with you. You're going to hell. You know, none of that, is there? No, everybody celebrates. Everybody rejoices. We're all excited. There are thousands of people being baptized today in places where when they get baptized out in that river, that there are going to be people that come out to that river and say, if you do that, you're no longer my son. You're no longer my daughter. You, you do that, I'll never do business with you again. My goodness, there are places that they find out that you got baptized, you'll go to jail. North Korea, they'll throw you in a concentration camp. Have you seen the satellite images of all those places? It's never reported on, yet there are thousands and thousands of Christians suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ. Why are they willing to do it? Because they love him. Because Jesus is their treasure. So my question to you is this. Is he your treasure? I hope that you've got downloaded already the Sagebrush app on your phone. If you don't, you need to download it. And then you need to open up the Sagebrush app. In fact, go ahead. I'm going to ask you to do something I've never asked you to do before. Take your phone out just for a second. Everybody play along with the pastor. Just take your phone out. Come on. Look at how easy that is. You're like, I was having withdrawal. This is so good. It's been 27 minutes, and this is one. How are you, Mr. Phone? It's good to see you. Open it up. Open up the Sagebrush app, okay? Do that for me. Scroll down a little bit when it opens up and look for the tab that says decisions. It's a decision of your will. Because that's where the battle is, isn't it? It's between your will and God's will. Your struggle is not against Satan's will. It's your will or his will. Which will you choose? There's a place for you to write your name, put your address, your phone number. And there it is. I want to get baptized. See how easy it is? In eight more seconds, you can set it up. Jesus had to walk 80 miles. In just a mere few seconds, you can finally be obedient and express your love to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray to God that you will. Never had a situation where someone got in that tank and said, I'm so glad I waited so long. It's never happened. You know what they always say? I wish I'd have done this sooner. It is a solidifying moment, and I can't explain it to you. It's something you have to experience. But when the world starts caving in around you and your faith starts getting a little bit shaky because nothing in your life makes any sense, you can hold back to that time, that day and time when you said, you know what, I know that Jesus is who he says he is. And I proclaim my love to him and him alone. And you will never forget the day that you're baptized. So if you haven't been biblically baptized, let's get that taken, taken care of today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you want obedience. You want us to follow you and serve you. Lord, you're the greatest treasure. 
we should be willing to do anything for you because you did everything for us. So Lord, I pray that our will would not be done because our will is to be filled with pride. I pray, God, that we would surrender our will to your will, that we would humble ourselves to proclaim our love for you. Lord, I pray not a single person who hasn't been biblically baptized would not take advantage of signing up for the next baptism. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.